All right, we're in Leviticus 26 tonight. A chapter of conditions, a chapter filled with ifs, both rewards and punishment. When I was a kid, very much probably like you, my parents sought to motivate me by rewards. Sometimes it was effective, and yet other times it was ineffective, and there were other more effective ways of motivating me through punishment. But they always made sure that no matter what the situation was, uh, I was properly motivated. I remember when I would go to my dentist. I hated the dentist. You know what? I still don't like going to the dentist. I don't think anybody really looks forward to it. But as a kid, my dentist, well, his name was Dr. Steele. And uh, he, it was a fitting name. Uh, in many ways, he was cold and uh, hard. He didn't believe in um, normal anesthesia. He believed in what he had. A, he, he said, he, I came in one time to his office. He said, I've got this new anesthetic. It's a topical spray. You spray it on the area, it'll deaden the area just as good as a needle, and I'd rather use that than an invasive procedure like the needle, so I'll just be giving you a little spray today, Skip, and it'll numb the area, and we'll pull that tooth. And I thought, okay. <laughs> the spray was great, but when he put the implement in to pull the tooth, it didn't work. I felt everything. But my parents had uh, a deal worked out. If I was good at the dentist, if I cooperated, if I held still and didn't complain, they'd always take me to Roscoe's Dime Store, where I could pick out a little toy. So I, listen, I was so motivated by the next newest toy that I would sit in that dentist chair as quiet as I could, uh, as much as I could. That topical anesthesia, though, I, I did have to complain about. But there were always conditions attached because of my behavior and because of kids' behavior. When I was um, about 14 years old, my parents took a trip to Hawaii. It was their 25th wedding anniversary, and they were excited about going, and they sort of left my brother and I in charge of the house. Uh, he was quite a bit older than I was, and he was uh, you know, able to watch over me, but I was working at a deal. My dad knew that I wanted an electric guitar. I played an acoustic guitar. I wanted that electric guitar that was in the store. And so my dad sought to motivate me by the reward. If you mow, uh, not mow, if you pull all the weeds in our yard, by the time your mother and I get back, I'll go and buy you that guitar. But all you have to do is give me a clean yard, front, side, and rear. Now there's about an acre and a half that they live on. But I figure in two weeks, hey, I can do it. I'm motivated. I'll pull those weeds. Well, I procrastinated. Time went on. I didn't pull the weeds. Uh, they were coming back in a week, and then it was a few days. And I knew that I didn't have much time, so I went out to pull the weeds, and I got just a little patch done. And I knew that I couldn't finish it by the time they got home. And so I thought, gosh, what do I do? I want that guitar so badly. So I went in the garage got the lawnmower, put it to its lowest level till it actually scraped the dirt, and I went out and I mowed all of the weeds in our yard. 
And they came home, and they were so pleased. And my dad went down and bought me that brand new electric guitar and gave it to me. Good job. You pulled all the weeds. I'm proud of you, son. Well, dad, you know, hard work, but... <laughs> the blessing was contingent upon my cooperation and obedience. Now, I hadn't fully obeyed, did I? But he didn't know anything until about two weeks later, after a good rain, he went out and he examined the growth that was coming up and noticed that the stems were pretty thick and he knew that it wasn't new growth, that those things had been cut. So he came to me and he gave me a chance. Uh, Skip, did you take care of the weed problem? Oh, yeah. How did you pull them? How, what was the process like? And I knew that he, I was busted, so I had to fess up. Now, fortunately, he was very gracious. I didn't have the guitar taken away from me, but I had to go out and pull those weeds. Now, in chapter 26, rewards are offered. Punishments are also offered. Both are contingent upon their obedience or their disobedience. Their presence in the land their provision uh, in the land, the rainfall, the fruit, uh, the taking care of the enemies was all contingent upon their obedience to God. And so a list of promises are given. And the first several verses, verses 1 through 13, are the blessings if they're obedient. Verses 14 through 39 are uh, the consequences if they are disobedient. Nine times in this chapter, God says, if if you do this, if you do that. 24 times in the chapter, God says, I will do this. So the I wills of God were contingent upon the obedience, the ifs. God would respond to their activity, in other words. Now, God gives commands for our own good, for our highest good. Did you know that God has your good in mind when he gives a promise or a condition to that promise, or a commandment. God doesn't give you a command that's impossible to fulfill, nor does he do it to make your life miserable. He does it to fulfill your life. Now, if you're a smart person, you'll view the commands of God. I'm not speaking of the keeping of the Old Testament law, but you'll look at the will of God for your life as motivated by God's love for you. And if you're smart, if you're wise, you will seek to obey God. If you buck against God's system, you say, I don't like God's commands, I protest, I should be able to do what I want to do, you are a foolish person. You're not hurting God, you're hurting yourself. For God has given them for your benefit, that you might enter into the fullest possible covenant relationship of love with Him. And so the commandments are given. Now, in verse 1, You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths, and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, 
Then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. And you will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred. A hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. For I will look on you favorably, and I will make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. The blessings of God in those verses are promised if Israel, while in the land, as they occupy it, would cooperate with God in obedience. The basic principle we find in this chapter is found also in the book of Galatians. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man shall sow, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, you shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. It's a basic principle. It works in the natural world. It works in the spiritual world. If you sow watermelon seeds, you can't expect strawberries to grow. You should expect watermelons to grow. If you sow after the things of your flesh, only your body appetites, only your pleasures, you will reap of the flesh corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap everlasting life. And that's the principle that sort of overarches uh, this entire chapter. Now in verse 1 he mentions again idols. We find that God does this very often, not only in the Ten Commandments given in the book of Exodus, but often throughout their wilderness wanderings, God knows where they're going to end up. They've just come from Egypt, a land filled with idols. They're going to Canaan, a land that has even more idols in it. So God says, don't make an idol. In the Hebrew, literally, it means a worthless thing, a worthless thing nor a graven image, a carved image, nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. Verses like this have created enormous questions in people's minds as to how does it apply to me now. Um, there are some Christians who take this, I think, to the extreme, and uh, they're all worried about having art. Or they'll go into somebody's house and maybe see a picture of Jesus and they go, that's idolatry! And they almost seek to rip it down or something. Now there are some Christians who have even taken this verse and others like it to mean that you can't even have a photo album in your house. You can't have an image of any kind because the commandment of God given in the Ten Commandments is you shall have no graven image or likeness of anything that is on earth or in heaven or in the sea. 
So you can't allow your picture to be taken. You can't have a photo in your house of anything. The issue here is not art. If so, then God violated His own commandment. Because in the tabernacle, it's filled and adorned with beauty. There are engraved images on the curtains that line the tabernacle. The very Ark of the Covenant itself had a mercy seat. and There were two angels, cherubim, that faced down over the mercy seat. The idea here is worship, an aid to worship. Something that you would bow down in front of. Something that you would use in reminding you of God, using that image, taking it not only visually, but placing it in your mind and your heart as an image to represent, remind you of God, and bow down to that image and worship the Lord. Why? Because God is a spirit, and there is absolutely nothing you can make or draw to accurately represent God. Anytime you make something material to represent God, it's always less than God. God is separate and distinct from his creation. As the creator, he's transcendent above his creation. So as soon as you make an image, you've lessened God. It puts in your mind a false concept of God. Because God is spirit, as Jesus said, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, for the most part, Israel did okay with this in their own personal worship around the tabernacle and the temple. They got into problems when they started getting too close to the other nations and wanting to be like them. Then they started taking in some of their worship systems. But archaeology in Israel is still hard-pressed to find any image that Israel ever made of the Lord God, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Now, they had idols, but they were the idols of other nations. But archaeology shows no record of Israel ever erecting an image that represented the one true God of the nation of Israel. Turn over to Psalms with me for just a moment. Psalm 135. We mentioned that the term idol here in our passage meant worthless thing. And I thought Psalm 135 is a kind of a classic cross-reference to that idea. The psalmist describes just how worthless images of God are. Verse 15 of Psalm 135. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, you should be able to find one in the seat in front of you or share it with somebody next to you. The idols of the nations are silver, and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. How frustrating it would be to trust in some stone, some piece of wood, Go up to it and say, hi. Hey, how are you doing today? And it just goes, hey, uh, excuse me, I'm talking to you. Or what about when you're really in distress and you cry to that false image? It's not going to answer you back. 
Oh, some man came around and carved a little mouth on it, put ears on it, but they're useless. They're inanimate. God is above his creation. God hears all. God sees all. That's not an accurate representation of God. Now, the pagans who lived in the land of Canaan in those days ascribed virtues to their idols. They believed that the spirit of their gods inhabited the very images they carved. And so the pagans believed and still believe in many areas of the world that that image can perceive things and sense things and transmit them to the God himself because the spirit of the God somehow inhabits that image. So it can sense what you're saying, what you're doing, what you're feeling. That's what they believe. In some places, uh, Egypt, Mesopotamia, they would dress their gods up. They would even bathe their gods, take care of them. You see the folly of it? You taking care of God? Uh, hello, I think we've turned the tables around here. I think God's supposed to take care of me. The idea that I'm dressing my God and bathing my God? What kind of a relationship is that? In certain places still today, food is placed in India before some of the images and the idols because there is a belief that energy will be able to be derived from that food as it is sitting there. And you're pleasing your God. And in many places, especially India, you see people bowing down to the most grotesque kinds of gods. Now there's a principle here. David said, those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Whatever God you worship, you become like. So if your God is fake, you become false. If your God is cold and insensate, you become like him. If your God is living, you become alive. You become like the God you worship. Now, if your God is you, you become just more selfish. And it seems today that for many people, they worship themselves. They become like the very God that they worship. Over in Kyoto, Japan, there is an interesting temple. Maybe you've heard of it. The Temple of the Thousand Buddhas. And inside this temple, it is said, I have not seen it on the inside, that there are carvings of Buddha, but each has a different kind of a personality, different shapes. And people go in there and they search all around this temple till they find one of those 1,000 images that most represents them. And they worship that image. Now that's not unlike many people today in the world. They bring God down to their level. They make up God. They create God. They make God in their image instead of God making man in his image. They have some concept some idea, and they say, well, I kind of think God's like this. My idea of God is different than your idea. They get that idea, and they worship that concept. But if it's a false concept, it does them no good. And those who worship them become like them. Now, I lost my place, but I know we're back in Leviticus. Now, first of all, in the first couple of verses, God promises these people that if they obey him while they're in the land, that God will bless them by 
providing for them. Rains that would come in the land. Obedience brings the blessing of God and provision for these people in Israel. He says, if you walk, verse 3, in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. And the land shall yield its produce. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last from the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. The land of Israel is a very water-conscious place. They depend, as we talked about last week, from rain that would come from heaven. It's a land of hills and valleys. In a good year, it rains, first of all, in the fall time. That's the early rain. And then it will rain later on at the end of their winter time. It's the latter rain. It might interest, you know, a lot of people picture Israel, ah, it must just be a big old desert. Did you know that Jerusalem has the exact amount of annual rainfall as London, England? Now, the difference is that Israel gets most of its water in one concentrated time period or two concentrated time periods, whereas London gets it scattered throughout the year, and the soil is different. It collects it different. They depend upon the rain. To this day in Israel, even though they have the Sea of Galilee, they have this huge water pump at the north uh, western side of the Sea of Galilee pumping the water throughout the rest of the land of Israel, they will say, if it doesn't rain, we're in deep, well, we're not in deep water where you won't have any water. Uh, we're in uh, deep sand. We need water. And they will pray. They'll call the nation together for prayer. The rabbis will have meetings at the western wall, the Wailing Wall, and pray for prayer. Uh, pray for pray for rain. Pray that God will bless their land. Because they depended upon rainfall and perennial springs that come from the rainfall. Whether you were a farmer or a housewife, you either needed a well that came up from the ground, or you had to depend on that rain. Knowing that God would send the rain, they prepared to collect the rain in huge places called cisterns. They would dig them out of the ground. If you ever go to Israel with us, you've got to go to the garden tomb and see probably the largest carved out water reservoir in the land of Israel, carved out of solid limestone. It's huge. You could stand in it and, and uh, you know, it's probably as deep as this auditorium and almost as big carved out of solid rock. In fact, they still use it today in the, in the uh, uh, drier times of the year. They use the water in that cistern to water the entire garden around the garden tomb. In Masada, they've dug out huge pits and they put a limestone mortar, a lime mortar uh, on the inside of it to seal it, to preserve it. So that when it would rain in the desert and down in Masada, out by the Dead Sea, it doesn't rain that much. So when it would rain, they would, outside of Masada, get little uh, uh, channels that were dug out of the rock from up the hill, down the hill. And they would let that water run down those little rivulets and collect in the cisterns. So that whatever rain God would bless them with, they'd at least have enough in storage to last them a while. Now God says, if you obey me, I'll provide. You'll have plenty of rain. You'll have plenty of fruit in your threshing and in your sowing. God promised that he would bless them and that he would multiply them. 
I love that about God. I think it's really a good system. God knows that we could spend all of our lives being consumed with provision. Some people are. Their whole life centers around providing for their physical needs. And Jesus said, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. What kind of a life is it that some of you are living? If you were pressed as to your priorities, what do you do? Well, I work over here. Why? What do you mean, why? Everybody has to work. Why do you work? So I can eat. Good answer. But why do you eat? Why do I eat? That's stupid. I eat so I can live. Well, what do you do with your life? I work. I work hard. And I'm trying to amass enough so I can have a bigger place and more of this and more of that. And All right, but how about if you seek first as your priority rather than your own provision, the kingdom of God? Well, what would happen? God said he'd take care of you. If you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things shall be added to you. Now, does that mean that you just kick back and do nothing? Does that mean that you just expect to sit at home and loaves of bread will come floating through the window and steak dinners will just come floating and you just say, hey, God will provide? No, because the analogy Jesus used in the Gospel of Matthew, giving that directive, he said, behold the birds of the air. Birds are hard workers, but the difference is they don't fret. You ever see a bird with his beak buried in his little claws going, what's going to happen? I don't have the mortgage payment on the nest. I can't make it. But that doesn't mean they do nothing. You don't ever see a bird with its head perched back and its beak just open. You know, God, drop a worm in. They've got to cooperate. They've got to work. And so God says he'll provide, but notice verse 5. Your threshing, in other words, the implication is you're going to be out there working. Threshing shall last till the time of vintage and vintage until the time of sowing. I believe that God desires your life to be as carefree as possible. Oh, we have cares, but Jesus talked about the seed of the Word of God that's choked up by the cares of this age. Your life can be consumed by those cares. I think he wants you to live carefree. Now, that doesn't mean you're always going to have steak. You might have peanut butter sometimes. I remember when I was going to college, and I was trusting that God would provide for my needs, and I was working on the side and studying and doing my best. There were times I ran out of everything except peanut butter, jelly, and white bread. Now imagine having somebody over for dinner. Hey, come on over for my, to my house for dinner tonight. What are you having? Peanut butter sandwiches. Then there was a time where the bread ran out. I remember one week where I had peanut butter. I come home after school and after work, and I looked at a jar of peanut butter. I said, God, you promised you'd provide for my needs. But you know what? He did. I didn't die. 
I'm still here. I'm still living to tell you about it. God was testing my faith. It wasn't much. Then when God provided more, I was able to go out and buy Hamburger Helper <laughs> and canned popcorn uh, and other things. But God does promise to meet your needs and He expects your trust. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. I will give peace. That's the second blessing. First is provision. Secondly, peace. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none will make you afraid. There were hostile enemies in the land of Canaan. Several groups that lived in city-states. And they were always the children of Israel under the possibility of attack from time to time. Imagine how frustrating for you to tuck your kids in at night not knowing who might attack. All of a sudden, as you're tucking them in and saying their prayers, you hear hoofbeats on the horizon and war screams. So God says, you trust me. You stay devoted to me. Don't get involved in the idolatry. Be totally committed. I'll provide for you. I'll take care of your enemies. I will rid the land of evil beasts. In fact, back in Exodus, God even said, I will not drive out all of your enemies at once, but little by little, lest the dangerous beasts of the field become too much for you. And they multiply in an outstanding rate. So God said, I'll even regulate the takeover of the land so that the beasts don't get you. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred. A hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. God didn't want them to spend all of their time in the land of Canaan fighting. Now they had quite a bit of time where they fought. The book of Joshua records the victory march and the campaigns as they took over the land south, uh, the northern campaign, and then as they moved east toward the Philistine country. It records that. But God didn't want them to spend all their time fighting. He wanted them to enjoy the land. Just like God doesn't have planned for you consistent warfare. Now, some of you say, boy, I feel like it's consistent. I feel like from the time I get up in the morning to the time I go to bed at night, Satan hassles me, dogs me, and attacks me. It won't last forever. I'm here to tell you that. God's plan for you is to enjoy Him. Now, we're always, in one sense, in the world and being attacked by the world system. But there are some people who feel like their whole life is one continuous attack. But the Bible also talks about the possibility that we could be fighting against God. Sometimes God hones us and allows things to come in our lives to test us, to try us, to shape us. It's not all the devil. Sometimes it's our own flesh. And at other times, it's God and his molding process working with us. But nonetheless... Wherever you are at tonight, if you're in a season of warfare, God's plan is that you don't remain in that season forever, but that God would take care. Interesting verse, verse 8. Five of you shall chase a hundred, a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Uh, commentators look at that verse and say this has to be hyperbole, an exaggeration. It's a, a literary uh, uh, thing that God is doing to make you know, people feel emboldened to trust Him. Well... What about Gideon? Gideon had 30,000 men. 
camped at the well of Herod, across the valley by the hill of Moray, were 132,000 Philistines. God said, Gideon, there's 30,000 of you against 132,000, and you're going to fight them. Okay, God, we'll trust you. Big order. But you have too many men, Gideon. Uh, Did you say correctly, God, I have too many men? I only have 30,000. They have 132,000. That's right, you have too many. You see, if you beat them with 30,000 men, you're going to walk around bragging that you're such a great group of soldiers. So I've got to thin out the ranks and lower the odds against you. I want you to go up to your men, Gideon, and I want you to give them an out. I want you to say to them, Army, whoever of you today is fearful and afraid, go home. Give them that. Tell them that. So Gideon walked up to 30,000 men. said, whoever is fearful and afraid, go home. 22,000 of them left. (laughs) They were honest. That left 10,000 left. Now Gideon's shaking a little bit at this time, and he says, okay, I've got 10,000 against 132,000. God says, you still have too many men, Gideon. Imagine how prideful you would be if 10,000 of your good soldiers, your strong, brave soldiers, fought and beat these guys. I'm going to thin out the ranks more. I want you to take them to the well of Herod, where the water to this day flows out of what's called the spring of Gideon. If you go to Israel with us, we'll take you to that well and let you drink like the children of Israel. He said, tell them to go get a drink of water and then watch them. If they get on their knees and they lap like a dog, take note of that. But if they kneel and they bring the water up to their face like this, in their hand and they drink, those are the people that will be your soldiers. So Gideon said, well, whatever. And you think, well, that's a goofy kind of a test. No, it isn't. A good soldier is not going to keep his face looking down. He's going to lap like this, looking around at who might be coming. 300 men passed the test. So now you've got 300 men against 132,000 Midianites. Talk about stacking the odds. You know the rest of the story. Gideon, who was a coward at first, became a mighty man of God. Who else is he going to trust at that point anyway? And goes out into battle against the Midianites who were camped by the hill of Moray on the north side and out in the valley God gave them the victory. Tremendous story. And then what about Jonathan and his armor bearer? There's a whole camp of Philistines fighting against Israel. They know that they're going to attack the next morning or that Israel is going to fight against them and a thought comes into Jonathan's head. He goes, you know, he says to his armor bearer, God can do anything. What would restrain the Lord from saving by many or by few? You know, if God was really for us, armor bearer, we could defeat the entire camp of the Philistines, just you and I. Now, had I been the armor bearer, (laughs) honestly, I would have said, you know, you're one... Fry short of a Happy Meal, Gideon. This is ridiculous. You're just one tree short of a forest. It's not going to work. But Gideon said, let's test it. 
What restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few? Now, have you ever thought about that when you're facing an insurmountable circumstance? It looks so bleak. Hey, bring God into the picture. This is so hard for you. But don't ask, is God on your side? Are you on God's side? Are you linked up with God in that covenant relationship? And again, you know the rest of the story. God routed them and gave the victory to Israel through Jonathan and the armor bearer. What about David? Looks up at that big Goliath and says, Who is that uncircumcised Philistine who dares to speak those things against God? I'm going to whoop him. And he goes out there without shield, without the armaments, and the necessary implements for war, and he faces them off, and God gives them the victory, and all of the Philistines run away because their champion has been defeated. And one has only to look at some of the modern history of Israel with the Six-Day War and some of the fascinating stories that happened in the Golan Heights, how just a few number of Israeli soldiers pushed back entire garrisons and camps full of tanks of the Syrian army in the Six-Day War. Fascinating. God said, I'll preserve you. Five hundred of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Verse 9, I think, is the capstone of what God promised. And I know we're moving slowly, and I do hope to make it through the chapter, but I will look on you favorably. God says, I'll provide for you. I'll give you peace. I'll drive out your enemies. But the real capstone of this promise is the partnership that God promises, the fellowship. I will look on you favorably. I will make you fruitful and multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. I have broken their bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. In verse 9, the term is something that you should latch on to. When God says, I will look on you favorably, it's a term of relational intimacy. It literally means I will lean toward you in a warm fashion. I will turn toward you and lean toward you like a husband would his wife whom he's in love with. You know, when a couple is in love, you can tell. It's not difficult to tell. Just the way they look at each other, the way they grab the hand, gaze into each other's eyes. Somebody made an interesting observation that I think is in many cases true but sad. He said, go into a restaurant and you can tell the couples that are married. They're staring at something else, and they're not communicating. You know, when I heard that, I thought, I'm going to try it. And so I started going in restaurants, and I started looking around, and I told my wife this, and, you know, we didn't want to be, you know, too nosy and look, what are these guys looking at, looking around? But I found, by and large, unfortunately, as the marriage relationship wears on, that couples sort of become detached it becomes a legal relationship, but the intimacy, the warmth is lost. That's so sad. Now you and I are called, in the New Testament, the church is called the Bride of Christ. You have a relationship of love with your Lord. But have you grown cold? 
Oh, you still might have a legal relationship. Yeah, me and God. Sure, I love God. But God wants to lean toward. You remember it was John who loved to lay his head on the bosom of Jesus? I love that attitude. I want closeness with Jesus. Excuse me, I'd like to sit next to Jesus. I want to lean my head on him, on his heart. God says, I will look favorably towards you. He says, I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. It sounds very much like sort of divine wedding vows. It's a covenant that is made. And it was a covenant that God wanted permanently. You and God have a covenant. When you said, Jesus Christ, I want you to be my Savior, to justify me from my sins, to sanctify me, to make me more like you. There's a covenant relationship that I have now with you. It's a permanent thing. You don't get a divorce from God. God wants to walk among you permanently. A husband and wife share vows on their wedding day, to have and to hold from this day forward for better for worse, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. Well, your covenant with the Lord is even broader and deeper than that because when you do die, you still never part from God when you have that covenant relationship with Him. It just gets better. You're closer. You're with Him in a very, very intimate and personal sense as you're with Him in heaven. Verse 13, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. Ten times in this book that is mentioned, the deliverance from Egypt, a hundred times in the Old Testament altogether, it's the hinge, the hallmark, that they were to indelibly remember all their days. God delivered them. They were once slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. You know what that means? You'll walk tall. That's what it means. Not like a slave who has his head down in shame. I delivered you from slavery. You walk tall. You belong to me. But if you do not obey me, now there's a whole list of punishments because of disobedience. If you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you and wasting disease and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. The Arabic equivalent of wasting disease, they call it consumption, and they refer to it as tuberculosis. That's how they interpret it. In the Transjordan area of the Middle East to this day, tuberculosis is one of the biggest problems among the Bedouins. The camels give it to them. Their livestock give them tuberculosis, and so it's not unlikely to find a high level of this wasting disease among the Bedouins of Jordan, uh, the West Bank in Israel, Syria, Saudi Arabia. Knowing this, a couple of gals, you met one of them, some of you, a couple of gals, one from Australia, one from America, decided to be vessels of God to address the issue. They went over to Bethlehem in the 50s, established a sanatorium, a hospital for treating tuberculosis. They moved it from Bethlehem to Jordan, a little place called Mofrock. And I've been to it many times. It is run by an Australian nurse and a female physician who's in her 70s. What is interesting to me is that 
you've got two women heading this medical ministry in a very male-dominated culture, an Arab culture. They do not look highly or favorably upon women. Yet, these women are clearly in charge, and they're very respected. During the Gulf War, when it looked like America was going to attack, soldiers came into the compound and put a rifle at Aileen Coleman's head and said, we're going to blow your brains out because you're a Westerner. She grabbed the rifle and just shoved it out and said, look, if you're going to blow my head off, you would have done it a long time ago. Get out of my hospital. I've got patients to protect. This is nonsense. She's just a gutsy gal. Through their ministry, they have Bedouins from all over the Middle East. If they want to get treated, they go to this hospital. Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and the West Bank. They all go to this hospital. They get treated for weeks, sometimes months. There is a staff Arabic evangelist that runs through the wards every night, shares the gospel with them. So many have come to Christ in this Arab country by the testimony of these two women treating tuberculosis that now in every single Bedouin tribe in the Middle East there is at least one Christian believer among them. It is perhaps the most effective evangelistic work among the Muslim world that I know of. I'm on the board of directors for that little place, that little hospital. And it's exciting to see the work of God as they go in where there is a wasting disease, a consumption. Now I know that this really has little to do with this text itself, but I thought I would kind of take an old disease that God promised disobedient Israel and show how that in a place like the Middle East there are Christian people who are responding to the needs. God says, as punishment, you will sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. And those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. Did that happen? Yes. 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and took the northern kingdom, Samaria and Israel. In 586 B.C., after three campaigns, the final and third campaign, the children of Israel were taken out of Judah, placed in Babylon for 70 years, and the temple was destroyed by fire. After all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, and your land shall not yield its produce nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but you walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you and will punish you yet seven times more for your sins. You know what this sounds very much like? The book of Revelation, doesn't it? Seven plagues are placed upon the earth, and then seven more, and then seven more. And each time that there is a plague upon the earth, it says, And yet they did not turn from their sins nor repent. And more punishment came. They hardened their heart. And I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of my covenant. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. Now, if you lived in a town 
out in the country without a wall around it. You wouldn't stay there when the enemies come. You would flee to the nearest metropolitan area, the place where there was a wall around the city for protective purposes, obviously. Now, the problem with that is that when you have other towns fleeing to your city, you're overpopulated. You don't have enough food to go around. And so you have famine problems, you have pestilence problems, you have disease problems. A siege, you know, the Gulf War, if you would have been able to somehow show that to the ancient peoples, they couldn't imagine it. A siege took years. You would camp around it so that people couldn't go in and out. You'd literally starve them to death so that they couldn't get cattle, they couldn't get provision. They would just use up the resources within that town. It was a slow, painful, debilitating way to die as you would strangle them from their resources and their water supply. And then you would make breaks through the wall using battering rams, and it was a slow siege, and the people within the city would be wasting away eventually and so weakened that hopefully, if you were the enemy, they would give up. When I have cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven. Now, men, don't get the idea that this sounds like a good setup. Think, hey, it'd be great. I'd love to be waited on ten cooks. Now, the idea is that there will be so many people in that city, but not enough bread to go around that you'll be actually measuring crumb by crumb to give people a part of it. Ten women shall bake your bread in one oven. They shall bring back to you your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. And after all this, if you do not obey me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. And you shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. When you read those verses, you say, that's unthinkable. That could never happen. It has happened in history. It happened in Israel when King Ben-Hadad of Syria besieged Samaria. And there was famine in the land, and people from the countryside swelled into the city, so there was not enough provision. Because of the famine, the scripture says that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver. Unthinkable. And a core, about a pint, of dove's droppings sold for five shekels of silver. Can you imagine buying that for fuel? One day, when the king of Israel was walking around the wall of Samaria, Ben-Hadad was around besieging the city. He heard two women crying out, Help me, help me, said one woman. He looked over and said, What's your problem? And the woman said, I have a problem with this woman. She promised that if we would eat my son, that then we could today eat her son. And so yesterday we boiled my son and ate him. But she has hid her son from me. When the king heard that, he tore his clothes and he cursed Elisha the prophet. And if I don't kill him by tomorrow this time, you know, then God do more and the same to me. He was blaming Elisha for the sin of the people that brought on exactly what God said would happen. 
They ate their children. Jeremiah, outside the city walls of Jerusalem, lamented the city. And he mentions this in uh, Lamentations chapter 2, verse 10, and Lamentations chapter 4, I think verse 20 or 22. He says, Should mothers eat their own offspring and consume the children that they have cuddled? Should priests die in the sanctuary of the Lord? He's lamenting what happened because of the famine in that city. I will lay waste your cities, verse 31, and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I will bring the land to desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Of course, they were scattered several times, 722 B.C., 586, with the Babylonian captivity. But the last one was in really 70 A.D., that for 1,900 years the Jews lay scattered throughout the world until May 14, 1948, when the edict after the Balfour Declaration of 1927, I think it was, allowed the Jews to come back to their land. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths. I commend you reading 2 Chronicles chapter 36 to get the fulfillment of this. As long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land, the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwell in it. And for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts, into the lands of their enemies. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee, and they shall flee as though fleeing from a sword. They shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if it were before a sword when no one pursues. Absolute fear, irrational fear. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity and in their enemies' lands. Also in their father's iniquities, which are with them, they shall waste away. Now, the obvious lesson here is obey God, right? Here's the blessings. Provision, peace, partnership. Here's the curse. I'll do this seven times. Then I'll do that. If you, I mean, just, it's relentless. Okay? I got the message. However, God knows human nature. That we have a proclivity towards sin. That we have a bent toward evil. Anticipating that, God makes provision. But, and this is the good part, and we have to end with this. We couldn't cut it short. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness to which they were unfaithful to me, that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I have also walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham. I will remember... I will remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord.
There's a couple things that are into play here. On one hand, you have what we call a conditional covenant. On the other hand, you've got something we call an unconditional covenant. The unconditional covenant is what God made with Abe, Abraham. I will give you this land. There are no conditions of the land of Israel as an inheritance for the descendants of Abraham. It was an unconditional covenant. God promised to do it. It's irrevocable. It's inviolable. On the other hand, you have a conditional covenant, a bunch of ifs. If you do this, I'll do that. If you don't do that, I'll do this. How do you reconcile them both? Easy. If you disobey me, I'm kicking you out of the land. God did. 586 B.C., they left for 70 years. God says, but if you confess, anticipating that somebody would, I'll bring you back. Because I made a covenant with Abraham, and I'm not going to lie to him. So even when one guy, Daniel, reads that the captivity, what it was for, and that it was almost up, he bows to Jerusalem, humbles himself, and says, God, we've sinned. Bring us back to the land. God sent a messenger and basically said, I will. I'll bring you back. And I'm even going to reveal more to you than what you've asked. I'm going to tell you about the Messiah who's coming in Daniel chapter 9. Nehemiah, though they had come back, there was a lapse going on. He prays and humbles himself. God hears. A few godly people turned in repentance, and God heard their prayer because of a deal he made with Abraham that was inviolable. And he brought them back to fulfill that unconditional covenant in the land. However, there's a catch. The catch is you've got to admit your guilt. It's so hard for people to do these days. The three hardest words for people to say, I have sinned. We say, I have a hang-up. We don't call sin, sin. We don't call it lust. We, said, we say, it's just an affair. No, let's call it adultery. Well, we, were, we fell in love. No, call it lust, because in some cases that's what it is. Call it what it is. Admit it. If you admit it and bear it, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins, not your hang-ups, not your excuses, your sins, and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So many people today have what psychologists call a guilt complex. And they have all sorts of funny ways that they deal with it. They have the I'm okay, you're okay approach that is often mocked by me and others. You have a spark of goodness in yourself. Just fan that spark. Don't worry about what anybody else thinks. You feel guilty. You shouldn't feel guilty. You should live in a shameless society. Just pay me buku bucks every week for years, and I'll give you therapy, and I'll make a lot of money off of you, and I'll make you think that you're okay. Many people feel guilty for one reason. They are. And they should feel that way. And the best place for the removal of the guilt complex is at the cross of Jesus Christ, whose blood cleanses a man from all sin. If you say you have no sin, you are a liar, the Bible says. Now, I know Darwin said that sin is a misnomer, and B.F. Skinner, with his behavioral psychology, uh, uh, you know, put his nose up at the idea of sin. And then you've got the Unitarians who actually have a church and say, oh, well, man is basically good and can internally adjust himself with self-help. 
There's nothing really inherently evil. Then you've got the Hindus, a false religion, who says good and evil are subjective terms, and uh, we are, there are obstacles in life, and if you blow it in this life, you'll have chance when you're reincarnated. Then you've got Christian science, which is neither Christian nor scientific, who denies the existence of both good and evil. But then you've got the Bible. And the Bible says clearly men are sinners by nature. You're born into this world with the seed of Adam and by choice. The nature produces the choice. But God has also given you a choice to choose life, to choose him, to renounce, confess your sin. Confess means more than admit. It means to say the same thing about. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God says, fess up to it, Israel. And when you do, and when you bear your guilt, I made a covenant with Abraham. I'll be quick to forgive you. And then he ends by saying, these are the statutes and the judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. So what will it be? You can have several options. You cannot admit. You can deny what the Bible says about your condition. I'm, I'm not that bad. Okay, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as a lot of people I know. I, there's a lot of Christians I know that I feel like I'm better than they are. So, David tried to cover it up, committed adultery with Bathsheba, didn't own up to it. So you can not admit it and you can try to cover it up. Or you can admit it and say, well, I'll fix it. I'll read those self-help books. I'll go to those people who make me feel good about myself and I'll pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Or you might admit it and do what many people do, despair. Oh, you're right, I am horrible. I'm just a sinner. I just, I'm wasted, man. No hope. It's all over. I'm done for. Or you can accept the remedy. You've got a disease, a wasting disease called sin. There's only one antidote for it. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that is provided by grace alone. You trust in him by faith. And God will save you and wash you clean from all of your sins. God says, for their sake, I will remember the covenant. Life is short. Death is sure. Sin the cause. Christ the cure.